Hi, my name's Carolyn Bailey, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to AR Zone podcast number 35, featuring Ray Sikora and JC Corcoran. Joining us today in the conversation will be fellow AR Zone admins Tim Geyer, Ronnie Lee, and Roger Yates. Ray and JC have each been advocates and educators for more than 30 years. Ray, who holds two college degrees, is a co-founder of the Institute for Humane Education, working to help others develop critical thinking skills and awareness about human health, global environment, and justice for other animals. JC is a retired fire captain and paramedic who holds a degree in emergency medicine. He has founded and served as director for a number of vegan and vegetarian organizations and has used his medical training and fitness background to help others see the ways in which how we use other animals affects us as well as them. Together, Ray and JC have founded Plant Peace Daily and have written a new book by that name. Ray and JC, thanks for being here and welcome to AR Zone. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, thanks for having us. Very welcome. I'd like to start today by asking you both, what is Plant Peace Daily and why did you write your new book? When both of us have been doing our various forms of outreach, we realized that there were a lot of people around the world who, if you asked them, do you believe in nonviolence? Do you believe in peace? They say yes. You know, people want to identify with this. But we really saw that people don't include other species in that umbrella of peace. If you say you work in nonviolence or you say you work in peace, people assume it's uh, just between people. And so we really think that all beings and the earth herself should be included under this umbrella of peace and nonviolence. And so that's why we called the organization Plant Peace Daily. And people will say, oh, well, you're not really a peace organization. And we say, well, of course we are. You know, we're a peace organization that's all inclusive. It sounds to me like part of what you're doing is trying to reach people who are already activists. Is that is that your primary audience for Plant Peace Daily? Well, that was the primary audience for our book, Plant Peace Daily, uh, Outreach for People Who Care. You know, our organization, though, is much broader than that. And we do a lot of uh, outreach uh, into the general community. In fact, that's where we think most of our time should be spent is is trying to reach people who haven't a clue about all of these issues and uh, educating them and help to uh, develop them in in their knowledge about all of these issues. But in, in terms of the book, it's definitely aimed at activists because we all the time when we're either speaking or doing workshops or tabling, we're always running into people who say, I want to do something. I really want to do something. Or people who feel despair because they feel like there's nothing they can do. And when JC and I met, we had both been doing our individual activism for decades. And then the two of us came together and it was 
definitely more than the sum of its parts. It was we had so many ideas about outreach that anyone could do. So it's really something for introverts or extroverts, people with no money, people with lots of money, people with no time, people with a lot of time. And they're just these simple ideas that people can begin right now in order to invite people to a compassionate path. Excellent. Just one, one more question about the other activists, because I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that we've talked about with a number of our guests is what a lot of people refer to as alliance politics, reaching out to other activists and other social movements to try to, to, try to mm -hmm. coordinate efforts or work together where we can. Is that mm -hmm. something that has been received well when you talk with people about connecting the ideas of nonviolence to more than just as it relates to humans? Has that been received well? I think it's been received really well. You know, I focus a lot, you know, JC and I focus on very different issues most of the time in our outreach. And I focus a lot on ethical consumerism and nonviolence. Those issues, you know, as soon as you bridge that with, with people who are very interested in ethical consumerism or in nonviolence issues, you know, it has been received well, and I can't say that's 100% of the time. You know, I've, I've spoken at, for some of the religious groups who already think of themselves as the most peaceful people on the planet, and sometimes they're not really keen on hearing that they could take it a little bit further. They could broaden their circle of compassion. So there are times that they don't receive it really well because they want to think that they've already got the whole formula figured out. and. They forget that if we all stay open to sharing with each other, we all become more compassionate. That's true with the peace movement as well as the environmental movement. It's difficult sometimes to make inroads with them, uh, but if they're open-minded, then you know that's the obvious next choice or, or next step for them. Excellent. Thank you. I'd like to ask to both of you, really, how was it this all began? How did you... What was it led you to become vegan and go on to become advocates for for other animals? Okay, that'll be our two very different individual stories. Are you ready for that? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so mine begins, well, I think it begins way, way back when I was five years old, but I won't go back that far. I'll go back to when I was 15, and I was known as the animal person in our community. And even though I was known as the animal person, um, I was eating animals at least three times a day, probably more. And then I walked into a leather shop with a friend, and I had just downed a hot dog with all the fixings. And we walked into this leather shop, and for some reason the skins hanging there made me say to her, oh, don't buy anything in here, it's dead animals. And the woman behind the counter asked me a simple question. She wasn't pushy. She just said, oh, do you eat meat? And my 15-year-old brain started working, and I thought, what does meat have to do with dead animals? And then the light bulb went on. So I turned to the woman at the counter, and I said, no, I don't eat meat. And my friend looked at me like I was crazy. She had just seen me down the hot dog. So we left the store, and she said, why did you lie to that woman? And I said, I didn't lie. I'll never eat meat again. And I never did. You know, that was all meat. I gave it all. I had just never connected the dots. But I never heard of a vegetarian at that point. This is years ago. And, you know, it wasn't really something that was spoken about. And so I 
I was a vegetarian, but I didn't know I was a vegetarian, and my family thought I had gone completely bonkers, and they wanted me to eat normal, and they were very angry about my choice, but I stuck with it. And then a few years later, I met a woman, and she called herself a vegetarian. And I said, what is that exactly? And she said, well, you know, I don't eat meat. I said, no meat? No fish, no chicken, no beef? She said, yeah, no meat. I said, that's what I am then. So I was very excited to have a name for myself. And the same thing happened when I chose the vegan path was that I had never heard of a vegan. And I was renting from a dairy farmer and I heard a loud noise coming from his farm. And I went over there on my bike and they were loading up the male calves onto a semi and some of them were kind of wet and wobbly and some of them were a few days old. And I asked him what was going on and he told me that they were going to a veal facility and there was no use for them. And I asked him what the sound was and he said it was the cows. And I went around to go see the cows and their mouths were wide open and they were screaming to try to get to their babies who were being loaded on the truck. And they were pressed against the barbed wire and some had blood on their chest from pressing so hard trying to get out. And I never ate dairy again. And that just made me want to explore more on how all my choices affect other species. And not just domestic animals, but wild animals in the environment. And it really steered my life in this direction. And I've never looked back. I just keep planting those seeds, trying to invite people to look at how they're affecting the environment and other species. I was, uh, I've been a strong environmentalist since the very first Earth Day here in the United States, uh, April 22nd, 1970. So I've really dated myself here. And I actually used to go into colleges and universities and do programs on the environment, uh, in particular for the Sierra Club. And I uh, did it for many years. And then I uh, came across an organization called EarthSave. And I got some literature from them. and. Uh, the information just blew me away. I just couldn't believe that my dietary choices had such a huge impact on the environment. Uh, so I started studying that issue and I thought, well, this is really interesting, but if you know humans had evolved to eat meat and that was necessary for good health, then so be it. That's what I'm going to have to do is eat animals. But as I discovered, uh, and I should have known before, that uh, our government is a bit corrupt in certain areas and more areas than most people would care to admit, I discovered that that wasn't true, that meat, dairy, and eggs, and any animal products weren't necessarily good for us at all. In fact, I actually contributed to a whole host of uh, illnesses and diseases that uh, we suffer here in our society. So that really changed my focus. I thought I can no longer just talk about the environment. And in fact, it opened up many more venues for me to talk, to talk about uh, plant-based diet because I was able to go into the health issues, I was able to go into compassion issues, the environmental issues, all of these things to talk to people and to complete the circle for them so that they could understand where I was coming from and perhaps change their own worldview. That's two very powerful stories. Um, I wonder if I can ask a kind of movement question. Mm -hmm. I guess it's aimed at JC in the sense that he wrote this, but um, I, I would like to hear both of your takes on this. You um, talk in a, an article called Animal Reform and Abolition, JC, and you imagine yourself being a political prisoner. And the bit that spoke to me 
was when you said that you don't want anyone or any group celebrating my improved conditions, although you would welcome them. I just wonder whether um, whether you could elaborate on that and explain what you mean by that. I, I get the impression you mean that you would welcome them reporting what's going on but not celebrating. Is that right? Yes. Uh, well, if you think about it, from you know, from our own personal point of view, if we were in prison and say that we were given blankets, you know, or given clean water to drink or something like that, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to have happen to the prisoner. But I don't want somebody going out who helped me achieve that going out and celebrating it. What I want them to do is not celebrate, but to work very hard to get me released completely. And to, you know, to make it clear to everybody that I'm a totally innocent victim. I shouldn't be in there in the first place. And that's where I want their energy to be uh, placed. And I think that's true in the animal liberation movement. You know, they, these animals are innocent victims. They shouldn't be in there. They shouldn't be involved in this human endeavor. And uh, we should be, they should be released. And everyone should work in that direction and not celebrate I mean, I, I certainly I, I can understand people wanting to celebrate small victories, but I think it should be done quietly, and I think that uh, the work needs to be continued, and uh, not just to, you know, stand by and uh, think that this is uh, the end all. It's not. And and I think also, you know, if I put myself in the place of these animals who are on death row and haven't committed a crime that any time that somebody who is working on my benefit to try and get me out, any time they would speak to the media, I would want them to be sure and say, this person is wrongfully imprisoned. You know, although the conditions may have been improved, you know, I'm happy with these slight improvements in my conditions. I feel like I would want my spokesperson to be giving out a consistent message, and that consistent message should be, this being is wrongfully imprisoned and that this whole uh, system needs to change. Exactly. So I would, you know, I think that part of JC bringing that up, and I also will, will talk about that too when I'm asked about it, and part of our concern is that uh, for a lot of groups, they are working very hard on these reforms. You know, I mean, the, one of the recent ones was this slight increase in the size of battery cages for hens. It's such a, a slight difference. If you actually draw it out on a piece of paper, it's barely noticeable how much increased space these hens may get. And they may not get it. Um, and, it's, and it's not actually going to be um, a law. If it becomes a law, it won't be for 18 years, which means that the hens who are in there now get no benefit from it at all. And in fact, it um, what it ends up doing when those are celebrated, but the but the most important message isn't uh, voiced, is that a lot of people go, oh, that's hunky dory. Now I can go back to eating eggs, and we don't want people to do that. We want people to stay very clear on that message, and and we know that for some groups um, that isn't their consistent message, and that's okay. But if a group calls himself an animal rights group, we want them to have that consistent message out there every time they have an opportunity. And we've known far too many people who have wandered away from the vegan uh, ideal simply because they hear happy meat. And uh, it's not happy meat. There's never ever happy meat, but people 
think that that's what's happening because some minor improvement happens and suddenly they feel like, oh, okay, well, now the system's reformed and I can go back to eating animals. Yeah, thanks for your answers. Good stuff. I think that there is also, you know, we live in New Mexico and there's a lot of agriculture here and there are also a lot of people who consider themselves to be on the cutting edge in terms of caring for the earth and for animals and their peace loving and when we've been tabling you know we've had people approach us and go oh you know i only get my turkeys from embudo valley organics or i only get them from small local farms and in these small local farms if you visit them what i realized in visiting them is that most people who consider themselves peace loving or that they care about animals would not support what's going on at those smaller farms if they actually visited them. So I started writing up what I found on the visit so that when people would approach a table and say, oh yes, I only go to such and such farm, I could say, oh, would you like to read about um, that farm? You know, I visited there and, and here's what I found. Because I think we like, we really like to sort of have our old familiar foods and think that the animals are all doing great and they're out in the field and we don't really want to know what's going on behind closed doors and closed gates. And there's a very romantic vision of the small family farm. You know, although factory farms are far worse in their conditions, the small family farms are no picnic for these animals. Yes, well, I'd certainly agree with that. And In fact, um, I was invited back to my old university in Wales a couple of years ago to give a talk about my PhD thesis and what I did at the beginning of the session was to give people pen and paper or pencil and paper and ask them to draw a farm and most people drew mm -hmm. you know the kind of children's storybook yeah. um, picture yeah, because that's what's that's in their mind. That's a brilliant activity. That is brilliant. I love that. Can I steal that activity? You certainly can. There's no copyright <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, what a lot of people don't realize, though, is that even small-scale farms now are adopting a lot of what goes on in industrial farms. And uh, in many cases, the animals are treated just as poorly as in industrial farms now. So there, there's no real advantage to it at all. I mean, I tend to think that the, the main overarching point is the fact that if you have reform here or there, you've still got speciesists in charge. And that's the ultimate problem. So mm -hmm. even though you've got a system which, in theory, is much more humane and in theory should produce this or that benefit, you've still got people who don't care about other animals in charge of them. And so consequently, you know, the, you know the way that humans are. We'll find a way around things, cut corners and, you know, everything else. And so even if you eliminate one obvious form of misuse, the chances are another will, will take its place in the sense that you've got the same violent people in, involved, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and the speciesism that is at the root of it is still there no matter what the size. Can you each talk for a second about Veg Fund and tell us what Veg Fund is and how you got involved with it and what it does, speaking of outreach? Mm -hmm. Sure. Currently, neither of us is on the board of Veg Fund. We're just out here as cheerleaders now for Veg Fund. But we were two of the three co-founders. We co-founded Veg Fund with uh, Zia. When it originally started, it was 
actually very small. It was the three of us doing all the legwork, JC putting up the website, and all of us coming up with the system to distribute uh, a large sum of money that an individual who contacted Zia wanted to go out to activists so that when they were doing tabling, they could also do food samples, they could have literature, they could really do it right and not have out-of-pocket expenses. And so it was just such a fantastic wave to come through that would help. There's so many individual activists or small groups who don't really have the funding to do it right. You know, nice signage, beautiful booth, wonderful food, great literature. And so suddenly it just, it allowed all of these activists to do it and do it big and do it right and to be at things like uh, large state fairs or farmers markets. And the veg fund would cover the cost of the booth, of any serving supplies, of the food, of the literature. And it's grown even bigger now. And it's a very, you know, it's a simple process for getting the funding and you know, it's just wonderful to see what people are doing with it. The annual budget of Veg Fund has gone over a million dollars now. So they have an operating budget, and they're they're reaching across many countries and uh, doing outreach in third world countries as well now. So mm -hmm. it's it's really grown and expanded. That's awesome. That's good stuff. Oh, well, there, there was a copyright on good stuff, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also interested to know what the Institute for Humane Education is and what it does. Mm -hmm. So this seems to be JC's and my MO. We like we get in on the ground floor, we get these groups going, and then we go, okay, it's in good hands. Let's go start something else. So <laughs> JC started Veg Michigan, and now it's like Michigan's largest vegetarian organization. It's doing fantastic. And he's like, let's move on to something else. And the same is true with the Institute for Humane Education. Um, Zoe Weil and I worked together at American Anti-Vivisection, and we worked in the education department. We each wanted to be out of the city, Zoe and her family, and I'm not really a city person. And so we, we moved to Maine, of all places, to the coast of Maine, and opened a center. And this all came about because of a one phone call that I made to Zoe's house when we were still in Philadelphia working for American Anti-Vivisection. And she and I were going out to schools at that time all week, like Monday through Friday. We're going out, we're doing programs in schools, and then on the weekends, I was traveling and doing humane education workshops, and we realized we couldn't be as many places as we wanted to be. And we would just keep saying, oh, why can't we just divide ourselves up into many little zones and many little rays and send ourselves across the country to do humane education? And she was out for the night. I called her phone because I got this idea, and I called her next. And she called me as soon as she got home. She said, that's it. And that is how the Institute for Humane Education started. You know, we moved to Maine. We opened the Center for Compassionate Living, which is a center where the, the trainings happen. And it just blossomed. It blossomed into a master's program. And it's so fun to see what other people have done like around the country. The reason that Zoe and I both were focusing on education work is because we saw it as the prevention work. You know, you have to 
come at, I think any societal problems are going to have the symptoms which are already in society, and that's where the activists come in. So activists are working on the symptoms that already exist. But at the same time, Zoe and I both felt like, oh, let's, we have to do something. It's the prevention work, something that lessens and lessens the amount of violence going on in the culture so that eventually you don't even need the activists. There won't be those symptoms. So it was really going at what is the root of the problem. And I see it as the prevention work, and it's really important. And Zoe is still doing fantastic work there with the Institute. And I I moved on like I do, but I'm also, same thing, I'm out here, I'm, I'm the cheerleader out, out here now, cheering her on while we do flat piece down. You seem to have a particular sensitivity towards this notion of the root of the problem. In fact, you have a uh, quote by uh, Saru saying essentially that on your on your site. And one of the things that you seem to be sensitized to also is the idea of community. And in fact, you've spoken about this in, in two of your articles, uh, Ray, which is used to be veg and repair for despair. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it remi- reminds me because we, we've just begun our vegan buddies program on AR Zone. And part of that is to try to become this kind of happy, loving, inviting community that you're talking about. I personally think it's very important for people who are new and aspiring vegans to have somewhere where they can go for support you know, at a time when we're, yeah, we're still such a small part of the world population. And now we've got the internet. It seems that we should use it in that way to create a virtual community, which is also something you wrote about. Yeah, I think it's you know, I have a love-hate for computers and the internet, of course, but, you know, I've been in lots of workshops, you know, leading them or participating in them, where there are people from outlying areas, rural areas, who have no support system in their community, and they're trying to do really important work. And for those people, what I generally encourage them to do is be part of an online community, because we need to feel like we are really supported in doing what is often really difficult work. You know, we're looking at the darkest parts of the planet and trying to be a voice for the voiceless, and wow, it can wear you down if you don't feel like you're part of a really joyful, loving community and where you can get together and laugh and have fun and, you know, have that kind of balance. That's one of the things I've been working on with Veg Fund. I'm trying to get them to pay for meetup groups because uh, so many people, when they come together in a community, uh, get inspired and want to work together and to achieve a lot of the goals that we're looking to have uh, accomplished in this world. And the only way they can do that is when they come together. And the meetup group is such a wonderful way to do that. And it's, you know, throughout the throughout the world, I'm assuming do you, you have, have meetup groups there. Uh, we do in Ireland, yes. They um, begun that in, uh, through Vegan Ireland, the uh, Vegan Society of Ireland. So that they do. They're also starting to have kind of informal ones. So they they will meet up in a cafe and just say, you know, let's all hang out there. And in fact, sure. there's one vegan cafe or vegan friendly cafe which has got a, a reserved table now every Saturday for the vegans who will meet up at 5:30 in the evening. And then you've got the more kind of formal ones where pe- where people come. Yeah, you know, there might be 30 or 40 people then. So yeah, it seems to be growing in Ireland at least. Yeah, and and I know that it's in many other countries as well. And it's a, it's you know it's a it's a great 
formula that they have. But this can all be done on social networks as well, at face on Facebook. So it, you know, this is not something uh, even Yahoo uh, or, or Google. They all have these kinds of groups that you can form and uh, you know build community, do outreach, and you know have the support that you need in order to do those types of things. JC, you mentioned earlier about the environment, and I understand that both you and Ray advocate for the environment. Um, Ray, you're also, you also hold a degree in environmental education. Why do you think the environment is important in relation to the lives of other animals? We're each pointing at each other. Oh, you can go. Oh, you can go. We're being very polite. <laughs> For me, it is everything. You know, we're talking about our home and the home of our larger family, all species, who I consider all to be part of my family. And I think that it's very common that people like to separate it out, like, oh, you know, I care, I love animals, but oh, I don't care so much about the environment. And you really can't tease any of these issues apart. They all affect each other. So uh, a healthy environment with, you know, clean water and, and clean air is not only good for humans, but for all species. I mean, there's so many issues right now. Animals who are caught in situations because of human activity, you know, everything from overfishing to uh, oil spills to pollution in the oceans, in the air, you know, they are caught up in what is an environment of our making, you know, and the problems in the environment are of our making. And that's why I do a lot on ethical consumerism. I love doing workshops on that, on helping people really look at who and what do you care about and how does it show up in your life? How does it line up? How do your values and your choices line up every day? Because I think it's very easy to say, oh, I care about the environment, or I care about animals. But if you look at the reality of people's choices, the choices don't often support what they're saying and who they say they care about. So it's so basic. You know, this is our home. And for all we know, this is it. There's only one. and. You know, if you just look around, it's, it's, it's a battle. You know, where, where we live, uh, there is a lot of cattle grazing. I guess I'm considered in our community to be sort of public enemy number one because I don't support what they call the rich tradition of cattle grazing. And I think that we should care for the land, which is turning into total desert here because of the cattle grazing. And we have very little water for humans and the animals, the wild animals who are currently here. So it's, um, it's very hard if, if you speak out and you want to be a voice for the earth. Um, anybody who is in any sort of industry that makes a profit off of using the resources really don't want you speaking up about it. It's kind of shocking the number of environmentalists who really don't understand the issues around uh, animal agriculture and commercial fishing. 
Both of these activities are probably the leading cause of almost every single environmental catastrophe that's facing uh, humankind. Facing uh, all beings. All beings, yeah. Well, humankind, they're, they're the ones who they're mostly concerned with themselves. That's true, that's true. <laughs> You know, global warming, it's the number one uh, cause to global warming. It's the number one cause of water pollution, water consumption, number one uh, cause of topsoil loss, of habitat destruction, species extinction. So many issues that uh, will be devastating to society as well as, uh, you know, the viability of uh, people living on this planet. And so many people haven't got a clue about these issues. And that's one of the reasons that we're able to go and reach out into these communities and educate because there's enough evidence now that it's all we have to do is make people much more aware of it. In terms of the environment, I think that more and more people now are willing to look at the issues around what we're doing to the environment. And I just returned from a couple of weeks of training teachers and principals in the Middle East. And I was working with uh, Christians, Muslims, and Druze. And these were all Arabic teachers and principals who are thinking about the environment. And even so, you know, one, one principal said to me, and everything was simultaneously translated for us. And one principal said, are you suggesting that people are equal to other animals? And I said, are you suggesting that people are better than other animals? And he said, yes, you know, we are. And I said, well, I want to tell you about where I was yesterday. So I tell, told him that I was on what is supposed to be one of the nicest beaches in Israel. And the plastic trash was piled high on the beach. The tide just kept bringing in all this plastic trash and bits of tar and you know, these are things that these other beings are ingesting who call the ocean their home. And I just told him, I said, I have never seen any other being, no other being other than humans who destroy their own home, who destroy their own drinking water, who destroy their own air. Um, no other being does that. So I don't know how you're measuring superiority here, but I haven't found evidence of us in any way being more superior. He just sort of sat back and said, let me think about it. <laughs> but this is our home, you know, and we're trashing our own home and the air that we breathe. And other species don't do that. They have it figured out. They take care of their own home. There seems to be a train of thought amongst vegans that speaking about the environment or even about human health, instead of speaking solely about the moral obligations we owe other animals, is a bad thing. What do you think about that, and are you aware of that? Oh, yes. I'm definitely aware of it. And I think there is, it's almost similar to when people say, oh, you're working so hard for animals, but you don't care about people. As if they're mutually exclusive and you can only do one or the other. I use every opportunity in educational situations to bring in all of those issues, the animal issues, the environmental issues and the health issues because uh, choosing a compassionate vegan path benefits all three and I don't see why we should leave any of the information out. I don't think it lessens it at all in terms of its impact on helping other species. You know, I, I do a lot on 
when I'm working with different groups in terms of trying to bring together the social change movements, you know, for instance, when I was working with the Arabic teachers and principals, I asked them in the beginning, would you like to be seen as individuals or would you like to be seen as just part of your whatever your population group is? Do you want to just be seen as Arabic? Do you want to just be seen as Muslim? Do you want to just be seen as women? Or do you want to be seen as individuals with individual needs? And they all said, everyone in that room said, we want to be seen as individuals. And I said, of course you do. And this is true of all species. It's true across the board. I think that rather than separate them out and say, oh, we should only talk about the animal compassion, I don't see any reason we can't bridge all these different issues because these bridges that we have that open up doors in the peace movement, that open up doors in the environmental movement, they are these very inviting bridges. And if you can really bring issues up in that way, people are going to cross that bridge and be open to expanding their circle of compassion. So I think it's sort of a win-win when you include all the issues. Ray uses bridges. I, I like to say portals. Uh, these, you know, if we talk to somebody about health and we can convince them that, uh, uh, you know, a plant-based diet can be very healthy. In fact, perhaps much more superior than uh, an omnivore diet. Uh, then it opens them up to the possibility of accepting all of these other issues because once they're convinced that the health issues are no longer something to be concerned about, then it it uh, it can open and expand their visions of what's possible in the world. I mean, look at JC. JC came to it from the environmental path. If he hadn't gotten the environmental information, the real information, he wouldn't be sitting here today. He wouldn't be the 24-7 activist that now I'm forced to live with. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is true that you don't sleep, uh, JC. It is true. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to jump in and, and ask you a hand-on-heart question, really. This might be a, a tough question, but it's deliberate in that sense, because you started off by talking about non-violence and peace and the fact that people don't include other animals in that formulation or construction of it. And I know that you're both committed to non-violence. Now, today, the British media have been reporting on a case where a woman was subject to domestic violence for 12 hours, which included having her eyes gouged out by her ex-boyfriend. Now, I know that we can't extrapolate from that kind of case and make any kind of sociological point. At the same time, Freud talked in more general terms about man, as he put it, being the most ferocious animal that the Earth or the planet had ever uh, seen. So, and on heart, do you really think that nonviolence is a is a message that will go very far. I think that most people like to think of themselves as being nonviolent, and you know it's very innocent to go to a, a shopping store, a center, and go into a grocery store or a supermarket and purchase meat that's wrapped in cellophane and not realize that you had a hand in a viol very violent act and mutilation and early death and uh, most people just don't get those connections and so once people have an opportunity to 
to see those that possibility that they you know that they contribute to a, a violent society that they would hopefully want to change their behavior and um, possibly move to a, a plant-based diet or plant-based lifestyle. You know, honestly, I don't think that humans are naturally nonviolent. I don't, you know, so I think that that in a way that's part of your question, you know, are we naturally the kind of species who gravitates toward the nonviolent way? I mean, generally, I think anytime you get more than one human in a room, uh, it's dangerous, you know, like they, they have a hard time getting along. And, you know, in terms of various species, humans are really the only ones I know, except for the occasional guppy, who don't take care of their young. Uh, we, we barely can take care of our own species. As your story from the BBC points out, you know, look what we do to each other. So I get that it's a stretch. We are asking a species who can't even take care of their own to think beyond their own, to think beyond their own species. I get that it's a really big stretch and I still hold out this hope that it's going to be irresistible as a culture. The culture won't be able to resist it at some point um, or we're doomed. You know, it's, I don't know if it's too late in terms of the environment or not, you know, and the number of people on the planet and the resources being used. And I've been asked this many times, like, really, you know, you're still doing this planting seeds, you're still doing this plant piece daily work and education work. Haven't you given up yet? Don't you see we're doomed? And maybe we are doomed. But, you know, JC and I talk about it a lot. And even if we're doomed, let's say when we are doing our programs, he's doing programs next week in Michigan, and I'm going to be doing three different days of programs here. And let's say one person decides to choose a compassionate vegan path. Wow, okay, so in terms of their food choices, they say on average that person's going to be saving 95 animals. In terms of their other choices, you know, products that aren't tested on animals and whatnot, it's something. It's something for those individuals who are spared. And in the big picture, I don't know where it's going, but with the time I have left on Earth, I'm going to keep putting my efforts on the side of possibility. And and um, just positive, life-affirming choices. You certainly, both of you, can't ever be accused of having a positive ambition. And um, I thank you and very much. JC and Ray, your book, Plant Peace Daily, is available free online as a PDF file. Why did you decide to make it available freely online? And what do the authors gain from doing something like that? Well, we're not interested in making money. We're interested in making vegans. And so that's why we offer it for free. I think it's a wonderful idea, and I think that you should both be commended for doing that. So um, I'd like to thank you for doing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. We would love to hear from other people who've taken some of the ideas and run with them. And we do get to hear from yeah. people who have taken the ideas in the book and run with them. People get really excited because there's something in there for everyone. And Would you like to give the web address of where people can find it free online? Sure. Uh, you can go to uh, plantpeacedaily.org. 
and uh, we have a number of uh, bars on the left-hand side, and one of them says store, and you can go to the store, and that's where the free PDF is. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, but you, re you really haven't got the idea of store, really, have you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does a store mean you're supposed to charge money for things? <laughs> oh, yes, and rip people off and, you know, fool them into shelling out more than they wanted to and that kind of stuff. We do, we do sell uh, bumper stickers on there, and we recently have a, a prayer flag that's available on that site. But we don't really care whether we sell those things or, you know, it's just for people to do more outreach. Is, that's what it's all about. And we just try to cover our costs when it comes to that. And even, you know, we used, do we still sell the t-shirts on there? No. Oh, we used to sell t-shirts on there. And that wasn't even about making money. That was about people going out and being human billboards, which is one of the ideas in the book, that people would go out and they're wearing this amazing vegan t-shirt that is still available online from the people who make it. And JC is the one who's like, wear your t-shirt when I go to crowded places like airports or something. And I was like, no, no, I want to be anonymous. I don't want people noticing me. I just want to slip through security and slip through the airport. And he'd be like, wear your shirt. Now I do it willingly. I don't have to be forced anymore because the results were fantastic. You know, I'm wearing the shirt. It says vegan, compassion, nonviolence for the people, for the planet, for the animals, and has a long explanation on the back. And I was like, well, here's like the first time that he had me do it. I was going to Atlanta to the airport at the crowded security at the Atlanta airport. There's like hundreds of people across the heads of the hundreds of people. I hear somebody shouting, hey, vegan, hey, vegan. And I look for the person shouting and finally I find him and he's giving the two thumbs up and he shouts over the crowd, me too, me too. And then everybody around me started reading the shirt. They wanted to read the long explanation on the back. And then I get to the security and I put my stuff on the conveyor belt. I put my day pack on there and I go to lift my day pack onto my shoulder at the end. And somebody slips it off. One of the security workers slipped it off my shoulder. And he said, I'm not done reading yet. Could you step over here? It was fantastic. The guy reads the whole back of the shirt. And then he turns me around, hands me my backpack, and he says, I'm vegetarian. Is this the next step for me? I said, well, why are you a vegetarian? He said, because I care about nonviolence. I said, then this is your logical next step. He said, okay, I'm going to do it. I mean, this is from wearing a T-shirt. So I'm just convinced about the whole T-shirt mm -hmm. thing. That's fantastic. Actually, JC has written about T-shirts in in the article about um, uh, the inconvenient truth guy and um, Ingrid Nuka. Oh. Who's the in in Al, Al Gore? Gore, isn't it? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, that kind of raises a question about the vegan police for me, in the sense that um, you know we can probably think that there's probably a reason for everything that vegans consume we could probably declare as not being vegan really i mean there's a big argument or at least there's a big issue at the moment in ireland about palm oil you know the well, issues yeah, issues about that and so consequently you know even things that are ostensibly vegan and they're labeled vegan you know because they've got palm oil in it then that you know by some they're, they're regarded as not vegan you know and in, and in some senses this this um creates a a terrible dilemma in the sense that Everyone wants to be as vegan as possible, but no one wants to make veganism so difficult that people 
will be put off by it. Yeah. Uh, do, yeah. You know, do, do you yeah, seem to be able to manage that problem? You know, I think it's really important to do it in a very inviting way. You know, so you bring up the issue of palm oil, and you know, the, the main issue with palm oil is that uh, the habitat for orangutans is being destroyed because of palm oil. And yet some of our favorite products, vegan products, have palm oil. And so, you know, it's really an opportunity to contact the companies and also to, you know, these products aren't perfect anyway. They come in little plastic tubs when you can make your own. Uh, so which we're doing now. Which we're doing now. We're making our own. I think it's an opportunity for everybody to do what they can. Nobody's got it down perfectly. Nobody is this beam of light who is harming nothing and no one. And yet, I think it's really important to do our best to to do the most good and least harm whenever possible. You know, without um, beating ourselves up, you know, whipping ourselves for not doing it perfectly, because nobody has got it down perfectly. That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something I like, I like to ask Jim, who I understand is a certified fitness instructor. Jim, what I'd uh, like to ask you is, uh, how important do you feel it is for vegans to make effort to keep fit and healthy? I think it's really a very important thing because uh, we know so many vegans who are junk food vegans. You know, potato chips and French fries are vegan, but that doesn't mean they're good for us. And you know, there's vegans tend to uh, gravitate towards. Um, Junk foods, just like uh, omnivores do, and uh, if we're if we live a healthy lifestyle, we're much more easily, are much more able to win people over to our lifestyle if we look healthy and we feel good and we are, you know, we're good examples of what the lifestyle we're trying to promote. So when we see vegans, that you know, I I love all vegans. I just look at some of them and I think. Oh, they're they're really doing a disservice to the the animals and to themselves and to the to the planet when they consume those kinds of foods in excess like they do. You know, I think that um, like it or not, because we're still a small percentage of the general population, most of us are poster children for veganism, and you know nobody wants to join a community of tired, you know, unhealthy people. So. It's a kind of a win-win, you know, like take care of yourself, eat healthy, get a lot of exercise. You'll feel better mentally, you'll feel better physically, you'll be a much better invitation for other people who want to feel good. We've had so many people come to us and say, I've never seen a vegan or a vegetarian that looks as healthy as you. I know, people have this, like, and I know it's sort of this mythology, you know, people are like, the sickly, gray-skinned, unhealthy vegetarian. And, but people love to bring it up, and so it's really nice that they don't get to bring it up to us as that that's who we are. <laughs> but now there's so many world-class athletes that are following this lifestyle, and you know most people are aware of them or have heard about them, so that's making it easier for us. Yeah, that's that, that's great. I mean, my, my, you know, just you know, speaking for myself, that if um. I've I become vegetarian and, and later vegan through knowing someone who was vegetarian and he was um, he was an athlete, he represented the, the county athletics and he was very fit and healthy and I think if he'd not been healthy that would have just 
given me an excuse to carry on eating meat yeah. and I'm never have got yeah. into um, being an advocate for animals at all. And I, I really believe it that omnivores are always looking for an excuse not to go on, on a, to the plant-based side. <laughs> yeah, because who wants to change? Nobody wants to change, you know, so you you love having a little out. You know, but I really think the I've seen such positive results from being healthy and you know the people around me my own sister who you know swore up and down she would never do vegetarian she would never do vegan came out to visit me and we were hiking in the mountains and i was wearing shorts and first of all she said how come you're never out of breath and i said oh i don't know i feel good we were hiking up and down mountains and then we stopped for a break and she grabbed my thigh and she said why don't you have cellulite and I said, I don't know why I don't have cellulite. She said, I think it's because you're vegan. I'm going to go vegan. Now, I can't say that that's like this really um, honorable reason to go vegan is so you won't have cellulite. But we'll take anything we can get. We'll take whatever we can get. Yeah. <laughs> but it did, it, it kind of started her on the path. And then from there, she learned about the compassion issues and the environmental issues. And, you know, now she's outspoken about it, which I love. You just never know where it'll take you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I'd like to say before before we end is just thank you for what you're doing. For, yes, for absolutely. your wonderful work and for being in our compassionate vegan family. We love our chosen family. And if you're ever in New Mexico, come and visit with us. We've got a room for you. We, we you got have a home in New Mexico. Yeah. Come visit. That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, if, you, if you're ever in Brisbane, Carolyn will put a sleeping bag out on the beach for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like to thank you both, JC and Ray, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure and it's been very educational as well. So on behalf of AR Zone, thank you both very, very much. Thank you. It's our pleasure. We love you, Aaron. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you.